Today's dead idea, escape from serfdom. We talked a lot about the Cossacks last time, and this time we are going to talk about old believers and frontier folk conquering, settling, slash kind of dying and propagandizing their way <laughs> into fame in Siberia. The history of Siberia, which I knew nothing about before this. And by the way, all of this is going to be, there's going to be the subtext that these were avenues that you could go to as a serf. We're not going to actually talk about a lot about serfdom today, but assume that as part of the background. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who has been exiled to Siberia for playing our theme song with only two fingers instead of three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reference uh, Old Believer Schismatic Liturgical Customs. <laughs> I'm BT Newberg. You can call me Brandon. With me today are my co-hosts, Anna. I'd like to apologize uh, to any listeners out there for mangling Ukrainian place names or proper names, but in my defense, I'd been drinking. <laughs> in the last episode, sure. And Nick. Howdy. And and your mangling of names is yet to come. My mangling of names will be... It's a given. We apologize to all Slavic peoples. <laughs> all right. So, uh, actually... Or Tatar ones, for that matter. Yeah, or Tatars. Yeah. So this episode, actually, I don't have any kind of intro. I'm going to rely on you, Nick, for any kind of context that we need, and I'm just going to say, take it away. All right, well, I will just jump right into things, as I know you've been wanting to do as well, and offer you guys a choice for where to start. Oh, okay. Do you want to start with the grand, heroic, and somewhat anticlimactic conquest of Siberia by a Cossack? Nice sell with the anticlimactic part. (laughs) (laughs) Or do you want to go to an old believer narrative, excerpts from the autobiography of the archpriest, or occasionally in Russian, proto-pope, which is a fun thing to get to say, Avakum, (laughs) who was one of the um, main ringleaders of the old believer schism, or old ritualist schism, and his travails being tormented and beaten by Cossacks all throughout Siberia. I kind of feel like maybe the leading with the Siberian thing is the way to go, and then ending up with the old believer. Yeah, because the old believer thing chronologically happens later. It does chronologically happen later. Start okay. from the beginning. Yeah, we should, yeah, we should go with yes. Let's let's start with the beginning. All right. So the conquest of Siberia, which nominally happened, which nominally happened. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a good statement and pretty hard to contradict. Okay. Um. So the conquest of Siberia nominally took place in October of 1582, when a Cossack named Yermak Timofeyevich took his band of merry Cossack pirates across the Real Mountains and conquered Koshlik, the capital city of Khan Kuchum, the Khan of the Khanate of Sibir. Did you say 1582? 1582, during the reign of Ivan the Terrible. So this predates serfdom then? Mm -hmm. Quite a bit, yeah. Okay. Most of the historical details for this come from a long time after the fact. I think the most contemporaneous sources are about 100 years later. And there's quite a bit of doubt as to any of their accuracy or even to the extent to which our dear hero here is completely historical. Okay. But really? They yeah. might not even existed? Or not in any sort of regular fashion. Huh. 
So if, if this is during the reign of Ivan the Terrible, uh, then this is also the time of the Oprich Nina, the great granddaddy it of the is KGB. very much during the time of that, and Just, that actually plays a prominent part in our story. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> because how the invasion of Siberia all started uh-huh. was with the Stroganov family. What? Love it. <laughs> yes, of um, the Stroganov fame. Uh-huh. Also, there's the Stroganov Icon Painting School and the Stroganov Palace. You're making me hungry. I know. You're making me confused. <laughs> and the Stroganovs were actually originally a peasant family. Okay. Oh. Though not serfs because serfdom hadn't been fully formalized yet. Yeah. Who were from, they were Pomors, which is sort of a Russian sub-ethnic group from the far, far north around Ar- Arkhangelsk. Okay. That got into the salt business and Ooh. made a huge amount of money in the salt works. Okay. One of the main political coups they had was, during the time of Ivan the Terrible, they asked to be granted a piece of land and asked to make sure it was under the sway of the Oprichnina. Okay. So they didn't want to be part of the old system. They wanted to be directly under the influence of no one but the secret police and the Tsar. Is Wait, they wanted thing? that? They wanted that. Because they were peasants. They weren't nobles at all. They just happened to be filthy, stinking oh, right. rich. And the Oprich Nina was mainly in the business of terrorizing the nobles. Exactly, which they were emphatically not. Okay. That's some odd bone fides there. Like, yeah. Yeah, okay. okay. So, meanwhile, another bit of historical context. Not too, in pretty close to living memory within the last 150 years or so was when the Russians had finally, or the Rus, the Muscovites, whatever. So, brief bit of backstory, Genghis Khan, and more particularly, I believe his son, Batu Khan, the leader of the Golden Horde, comes, takes over most of the northern portions of Central Asia, including what would later later be Russia. But not actually Siberia, not the northern forests, right? Some of them. Some of them, but not, not the main bits. Not the main bits. Yeah. But... Golden Horde is hanging out in Russia and northern Central Asia, not all of Siberia, but portions of it. And largely, that's in the early 1200s. About a century after that is smashed to bits by the next up-and-coming steppe warlord, Timur the Great, or Timur the Lame, or Tamerlane. Right. Also a Mongol. Well, I mean... Ish. Ish. Probably Probably spoke a Turkic language rather than a Mongol one. Yeah. But... Well, to be fair, a lot of the Mongols were conquered peoples that just became Mongols. Exactly, yeah. So, Mongol kind yeah. of yeah. Sure was a flexible term. Yeah. Also a Tatar, if, you're, yeah. if we're having a Russian POV here, so yeah, that makes exactly. it easier. So the Golden Horde kind of crumbles, and there are a lot of successor states. Among the successor states is the Khanate of Kazan, and the Khanate of Astrakhan, and the Crimean Khanate, or the Crimean Tatars, who we've heard some about in the last episode, and the Khanate of Sibir, in the area just east of the Ural Mountains. Which is going to be Siberia. Siberia. Yes. yes. But essentially as an ethnonym, it was just the name of this Khanate, which was a Mongol successor state, north of all the main Mongol population centers and east of the Ural Mountains. And even though the main Mongol power is sort of fragmented and not unified anymore, and what's slowly becoming Russia or the Russian Empire after Ivan the Terrible takes the title of Tsar is no longer under their political sway. Everything geopolitically in the area is kind of up in the air. Mm. So, Well, Ivan's got Russia itself on lockdown, but... Well, not so much. Really? He has the Russians themselves on lockdown, and he slowly... The way it plays out is he leads a bunch of successful armies and conquers the Khanate of Kazan and then conquers the Khanate of Astrakhan... And then eventually Yermak Timofeyevich 
crosses the Urals and conquers, after a fashion, the Khanate of Sibir and all of the Mongol successor states in what's now Russia get gobbled up in pretty short order. Okay. But at the same time, the Crimean Tatars in 1571, in the middle of Ivan the Terrible's reign, actually burn Moscow oh. in a raid. Okay. Um, there so are no guys could... who are another Mongol successor state that burn suburbs of Moscow 20 years later. That's a deep-ass raid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that That's like Doolittle's raid on Tokyo. <laughs> so yeah, at, with the benefit of hindsight and spoilers, we know the Russians totally won. But at the time, <laughs> right. they're both pretty much... Okay, that's what you it, mean by It's hard to tell yeah, yeah, okay. who's going to come out. The Mongols who could have had a big comeback. Totally. Yeah, okay. And came pretty close. Okay. Didn't wind up happening, but that wasn't by any means a foregone conclusion. Okay. And then meanwhile, they're there hanging out, making things more geopolitically interesting, and the whole big rivalry between Russia or Muscovy and the unified kingdom slash grand duchy of Poland, Lithuania, where they're each other's eternal enemies, both of whom mm-hmm. fight wars and ally with various different Mongol tribes. So even though there's an eternal struggle between the Rus and the Crimean Tatars, there's a time when the Russians are fighting, or the Muscovites at the time, are fighting a war with the Poles, and the Russians are allied with the Crimean Tatars against the Poles, who are allied with the Great Horde, which are the biggest successor state of the Golden Horde. It always throws me for a loop to ever think of any European people allying with Mongols. It just seems yeah. like something that would only happen in civilization. Well, and Byzantines routinely, occasionally, uh, ended up either bribing or temporarily allying with them. various Muslim successor states whenever the Crusades got a little out of hand. Sure, <laughs> so. yeah. Um, meanwhile, as a little background for why the steppes were the wild steppes and why the Cossacks living down there were so crazy, it's kind of estimated that between 1500 and 1700, I think conservative estimates are one to two million slaves are taken from Russia and Poland by the Crimean Tatars. Yeah, and supposedly, and I know the the etymology here has been questioned, but uh, supposedly our word slave comes from Slav. Comes from Slav, yeah. Which, because so many slaves were taken from that region and sold in the Ottoman Empire, that that's what it became. I get the impression this was kind of what the Crimean Tatars did a lot of. Yeah, it was their main economy, was yeah. taking slaves and selling them across the Black Sea to Constantinople or Istanbul. Anyway, Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ivan the Terrible, slowly gobbling up Mongol successor states... Kazan and Astrakhan are the two main ones. So, that is 1552. Kazan is conquered. 30 years later, around 1582, Siberia, biggest single sort of entity area on Earth now, uh-huh. is nominally conquered by Yermak Timofeyevich, hired by the head of the Stroganov family, across <laughs> the Ural Mountains, with 540 guys. So what? what they do? They come over the Ural <laughs> Mountains. They see a tiger. Yell at it. You. That it seems like away. that seems like something that can only happen in the movies. This is a bit Monty Python esque. Well, to the extent that it happened at all, we'll, we'll get into. Okay. But so yeah, five hundred and forty guys. Okay. Actually, eight hundred people. Five hundred and forty Cossacks. Oh, did they bring their women? And three hundred Lithuanians and Germans. Oh. Who came okay. from the Livonian front war front lines after the Livonian War, which Ivan the Terrible is just fighting. How many werewolves? Oh, yeah. It doesn't say. And on <laughs> one Wikipedia page it says they're Livon- Lithuanian and German slaves. And on another it just says they're troops from the front lines of the Livonian War. 
Okay. Um, Don't so. really trust my sources either way. Right. So... But we will just go with many, many grizzled, grizzled men. Grizzled, grizzled men, but not nearly that many. 800 compared to, like, okay, yeah, any no, other many yeah. more tens of thousands. Like, per square kilometer, <laughs> if I want to be international about my measurements, that's a really low ratio of uh, soldier to land conquer. To Siberia, <laughs> yeah. Or tigers. Or taiga. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're going to conquer a lot of Siberian tigers. <laughs> so... Yermak Timofeyevich got his career started as a pirate. He was a Cossack who was a porter that worked for the Stroganov family. Oh, incidentally, sorry, disjointed narrative. After the Khanate of Kazan was conquered, basically all of their lands were given by Ivan the Terrible to the Stroganovs. Stroganovs own Siberia? No, the Stroganovs own the bit of Russia directly to the west of the Urals. Ah, Right across the Urals is Siberia. Right. So which okay. is why they're thinking, hey, maybe we could do a land grab if we okay, just go right. over the mountains. So due to this grant, that's what put them in the position to then move into Siberia. Right. Okay. So Makes sense. they think we should... So they basically hired this private army. But but you don't normally think, oh, I'm just going to cross a mountain range, you know? That's not, that's not what most people think. You have to have some chutzpah. You do. <laughs> Although, to be fair, the girls aren't really a very big mountain range. Okay, it's well... It's a lot more like Appalachian size than Rockies okay. or Alps. So right. Yeah, but getting an army across it... Well, it's it divides not a two army continents! My geography teacher was American, <laughs> damn it! <laughs> They're two different continents. <laughs> so now the so, Stroganovs have Siberia. So now the Stroganovs have the area directly to the west of Siberia. They decide to hire this private army. Uh-huh. So they gather up some Cossacks, ask the Cossacks to... Elect the baddest motherfucker they can find to be their leader or headman. Uh-huh. And they say, Timmy's boy! Basically. Well, interestingly enough, Timofeyevich is a patronymic, as you just said. It just means Yermik, son of Timofey. Huh. He doesn't have a last name. Huh. Okay. He's just known to history as first name and Tim's son. Well, I mean, to be fair, a lot of last names are just that. But, you no, know, actually, his actual Johnson. father was Tim? Yes, and that's not true okay. in Slavic naming conventions. Okay. Essentially... First name plus patronymic uh-huh. is your first name. It's how you're going to be addressed in any kind of formal fashion is you, son of so-and-so, and then there's also always a family name tacked onto that. Oh. If you're important. Okay. So you were you would be Nick, son of... What? Craig. Yeah. Craig, <laughs> son of Craig, and then you would also have Moen as your family yes. name. And I'd be Anna Timofeyevna Bratton. And I would be Brandon, son of Ed Newberg. So... Hires a bunch of Cossacks, asks them to elect the baddest mofo they can find as their hetman, and they find Yermak, who was a river porter transporting salt down the Volga, uh-huh. until he got bored and decided to become a pirate. As you do. Sure. Quit his job, raided, stole shit on the Volga, sailed across the Caspian Sea, raided Russian boats, raided Persian boats, etc. Apparently this was also something the Cossacks did a lot. Hmm. I mean, they're they're like land pirates already. Yeah, and Cossacks river... gratuitously taking things from people who aren't ah. Cossacks. Why? How could this be? There's no precedent. <laughs> Meanwhile, sort of like you did with some of our hysterical devices. Uh huh. I'm just going to show oh. you this picture okay. and ask you to describe what you see. Have you seen it, Anna? Uh, possibly, but okay. Looks Spanish. So it's a it's a portrait. Um, it's very like red themed colors like kind of ochre colors and he looks he has a crazed look in his eye to say the least 
um, holding a spear, wearing armor, but the most prominent bit is this kind of like almost like twitchy eye and like a raised eyebrow over it that is, I don't know, he, he definitely doesn't look like like a proper cultured aristocrat. He looks like somebody who kind of jumped out of a hay bale dressed in armor and was like, I'm going to be your leader now. He looks like a conquistador on meth. <laughs> yeah, I, I can kind of see it. There's definitely a Spanish vibe going. But um, you like to definitely, definitely send that to me. I'll put it on the website. I will. So he takes his band of 540 Cossacks and 300 odd Germans and Poles who may or may not have been slaves. Or werewolves. Or werewolves. Or both. <laughs> they cross the Urals and they basically assault the city of Kostlik, which is the capital of the Khanate of Sibir. Conquer it, briefly, for a while. Um, incidentally, it's kind of dodgy whether this was authorized at all. By the Tsar. By the Tsar. Um, the Stroganovs asked for permission to do this. The Tsar gave it and then thought, no, I don't think you're going to be able to succeed, and this will just be a drain of resources, so, oh, so I'm they... sending permission, and then they do it anyway. Oh, so they did Awkward. this, like, Norman Conquest of Ireland style. Yeah. yeah, or like Margaret Thatcher's grandson going and trying to have a coup somewhere in Africa style with a band of private mercenaries. <laughs> Perfect. So the Stroganoffs spend 20,000 rubles to outfit their army of a pretty small number of guys with the best weapons available. Which, I don't know the exchange rate in the 1580s, but by the 19th century, it would still be a pretty enormous amount of money. Yeah, I'm sure it was fuckloads back then. Yeah. Um, there's some dispute as to whether or not... They had guns and muskets and metal swords, and, and apparently went up against the Tatars' quote-unquote bows, arrows, and spears, went up against Yermak's matchlock muskets, sabers, pikes, and several small cannon. So in the 1500s, muskets would be very new. Yeah. yeah. They would have had, like, arquebuses before that, but muskets... Would be a pretty new an thing. improvement, yeah. It wouldn't be much of... And it's debated whether they had any cannons or not. But they did okay. have guns, which okay. the Tatars did not. On the other hand, the Tatars were cavalry, and they did not have a single horse. Fought the Battle of Chuvash Cape on October 1582, which marked three days of fighting against Khan Kuchum, was the head of the Siberians. Okay. And they blocked the Tatar charge with mass musket fire, wounded the Khan's son, and in one paragraph, prevented the Tatars from scoring a single Russian casualty, and in another paragraph, a few lines later, lost 300 men. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans and okay. the Lavonians. So yeah. It's the only thing I can figure out. It's like, did all the non-Russians die to a man? Operation or... <laughs> Human Shield. <laughs> Hmm. And in the Stroganoff Chronicles, so there are two main sources of this, both of which are more than a hundred years after the fact. It's never not going to be funny. One of them is the Stroganoff Chronicle, which is written by the merchant family to... And Hamburger Helper. Yeah, basically boost their role in, hey, we're the guys that put up the money for conquering Siberia. Okay. And the other was written by the Bishop of Tobolsk, which is the first city the Russians established east of the Urals. Uh-huh. And which was made out to make your crazed meth conquistador written as a hagiography of him to make him into a saint. Uh What? Which did not succeed. Oh, yeah. But in which he's described as the Grand Inquisitor of Siberia. What? Which is an interesting callback to any listeners who know the Dostoevsky. But... Uh, Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, they smash the Tatars, they capture the city, and the Khan has to go into hiding. 
and they suffer no casualties or they lose 300 men. And then basically it's all downhill from there. <laughs> well, they were Siberia. to be fair, they were coming down from the Urals at that yeah. point. Yes. So it might have yeah. been literally downhill. Literally downhill. <laughs> the one sort of militarily successful thing and is they buy off lots of the indigenous peoples around who also were basically just vassals to the Tatars and weren't yeah, any more fans of them than anyone else. That's what I was wondering, is how did they get all those indigenous peoples that were just there since however long on their side? I mean, that, 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 you don't just conquer them easily. I mean, muskets, sure, but still, there's a lot of little peoples to pacify. That's in line. Yeah, I think it was some of that. It's just, you don't like this guy, we don't like him either, why don't you switch sides? They and Julius Caesar did. Yeah, enough people just said, sure, Yeah, that just it like, allowed them to hold out for... Yeah, you play this tribe against that tribe that they're traditionally hostile against, and then Bob's your uncle. Yeah, yeah. so there was a lot of that. You like noodle dishes? <laughs> <laughs> I got some noodle dishes, I got some salt. <laughs> and then... Sorry, I forgot to mention in the Strokenoff Chronicle... <laughs> <laughs> Khan Kuchum, seeing, the ru- seeing his ruin and the loss of his kingdom and riches, said to all his men with bitter lamentation, O Mirzas and princes, let us flee without delaying. The Strogodov sent men of the common people against me from their forts to avenge on me the evil I had inflicted. They sent the Ottomans and Cossacks, Yermak and his comrades, and with them not many men. He came upon us and defeated us and did us such great harm. <laughs> oh, Khan Kuchum, the unsung Khan. I feel like he's, like, the one that everybody's just like, yeah, let's just give him Siberia. He can have his little conate up there. Yeah, it seems to have been pretty small potatoes for the rest of the Mongols. <laughs> what he actually said, ah, oh, fuck it, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> he was just happy to get something. Gonna lose to a bunch of dicks in their salt empire. Basically. <laughs> so he wins over, Yermak wins over a native, or uh, indigenous tribe called the Ostiaks. They bring him furs... That allows him to sell that for money and feed his Cossacks throughout the winter, but then eventually they run out of food. They capture the Khan's son. Then some of the Ostiaks switch sides. There's a counter-siege. Things start to go pretty badly, and they're running out of supplies. Yermak sends his trusted lieutenant, Ivan Kolzo, back to the Tsar with 50 men, two letters, one for the Stroganovs and one for Ivan the Terrible, and a huge number of furs either 2,500, 5,000, or 60 sacks. So so the Russians right now, they could have easily lost Siberia at this point. It sounds like... Oh. Huh? We'll get there. Huh? <laughs> um, so this is, this is like uh, the New World, like when, when like the very few Spaniards were like in Tenochtitlan, like outnumbered a thousand to one or whatever by the Aztecs, and somehow they managed to like roll double sixes and just, you know, win the day. <laughs> It's what you might think. So Kolzo, Yermak's second-in-command, upon reaching Moscow, is granted an audience with Ivan despite having a Muscovite bounty on his head for being a pirate. And Ivan had just lost the Livonian War, basically, and he had been receiving reports of local tribesmen conducting raids in Perm, which is also Stroganov land on the other side of the Urals, which put him in a foul mood. And upon reading the news borne by Kolzo concerning the extension of his dominion, Ivan became overjoyed immediately pardoned all the Cossacks and proclaimed Yermak to be a hero of the first degree. There is a triumphant atmosphere extended across the city, and church bells were tolled throughout Moscow, and Ivan had many gifts prepared for Yermak, including his personal fur mantle, a goblet, and two suits of armor emblazoned with bronze double-headed eagles and money. Hmm. So he sends a band of reinforcements and sort of crack troops, 
they go back across the Urals to help relieve Nirmok, but by that point, they've actually completely run out of food and are starving themselves, uh-huh. and have all have scurvy. <laughs> so all the okay. reinforcements come into the besieged city, weak and starving, and with scurvy, and now there's they're basically useless for fighting, and there are twice as many mouths to feed. Oh. We got armor. They do have armor. The ups and downs in this plot. Yeah. They also run out of gunpowder, which takes away their main advantage, and probably resort to cannibalism yeah. in the siege. Ugh. Like you do. And then there's a ruse where our glorious <laughs> here. ruse? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yermak himself is killed, um, which I'll read in a little more detail later. Okay. And then Khan Kuchim, who's still hanging around, just drives him out of the city and takes his capital back. Okay. And that's the end of the glorious Russian conquest of Siberia. Officially. Oh, yeah, but they haven't <laughs> conquered Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> This was a very short educational film strip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that just where the reel just ended and yeah. now it's just sitting there flapping in the in the film projector? I'm really tempted to just cut it And there. The, the history teacher is just like, well, end of the lesson, kids. <laughs> this is why Sister on the Word historiography and not history. This is what goes down. This is what's officially written down is how the Khanate de Sibir and thus the whole Siberian land are conquered. But it was pretty much a complete failure. So they just propagandized it some? Yeah. And then later kind of retconned in that we conquered well, Siberia? Well, then they... after they've decided they conquered Siberia <laughs> and Ivan the Terrible takes the title Tsar of Siberia and uh-huh. has heaped accolades on the glorious conqueror of Siberia who has killed heroically in battle, okay. they just keep on sending guys and the guys keep on having guns. So he And eventually s- they win. So the Russians are like the AI in the game Civilization. Yeah. Yeah. They just keep sending troops at you <laughs> until you're worn down. Yeah. They never get scurvy. Um, so, yeah. Jumping, fast forwarding ahead a little bit to the end of the story. They never bother conquering the capital of the Khanate of Sibir again. Uh-huh. They just built another town ten miles down the river. Which <laughs> the becomes capital. their capital. The capital. Which becomes Tobolsk, the the bishop of writes the hagiography of Yermaki later. So again, civilization. They forward settled on the on the Mongols. Pretty much. And then eventually Khan Kuchum keeps on harassing them with yet less and less success. He goes blind and moves to more successful Mongols to the south that are fellow Muslims and Genghisids. And I think some of his sons are just taken prisoner back to Russia. Hmm. Ivan the Terrible writes him a letter saying, Come and comfort your old age as our glorious enemy in Moscow, and we'll make much of you. And he writes back saying, No, I'd rather be a blind beggar here among my own people. <laughs> and all of his descendants become fairly high up Russian nobility called the Sibirskis, huh. who are a prominent family later on. Wait, seriously? Oh. Seriously. Oh, huh. better name than Stroganov. Well, a little bit. Yeah, the, the Princess Sibirsky. They're the ones who I could find you pictures later on. Looking very, very 19th century in Russian, stroking floofy dogs. Oh, floofy dogs. I want to see the Stroganov's heraldic crest. <laughs> we can it's probably like find it. Three noodles rampant. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this is fun because Yermak also has a total. Again, I'm going to nerd out a little bit here, but has a total Isildur death, other than losing the one ring. But. Wait, so, so who, who sealed his death? Isildur. He has an Isildur death. And Isildur. Oh, like from, the Lord, from the, the Lord of the Rings? Yes. Yeah, okay. Precise details of Yermuk's death are lost to history, but legends have preserved multiple variations of the account. Balrogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yermuk's people had now entered a time of famine. Kuchim, knowing this, set a trap. We also have the Nazguls for the Oprichnina right do. around in black on black right. horses. Um, he's lured away by Khan Kuchim, who sends word that he's captured this rich caravan of Bakaran merchants that he thinks he's going to get sweet swag from. Okay. Um, he goes off, tries to find it, has no success, and camps in a river, and he's ambushed by Khan Kuchim's troops. They attack under the cover of night during a storm, and eventually all the Russians are killed except for Yermak and two other men who try and swim across the river. They're camped on an island, and he's shot full of arrows in the river and drowns poignantly and tragically because he's wearing the heavy, heavy armor that the Tsar oh. sent him. Oh, the irony! And therefore can't swim well, to bronze. safety. <laughs> what? Bronzery? Bronzery. Oh. <laughs> the ring betrayed your Mac. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, the other two Cossacks escaped to tell the tale. And meanwhile, Yermak's body was borne down the river, where seven days later, it is said to have been found by a Tatar fisherman named Janish. Oh, easily, like the ring. Yeah. <laughs> easily recognizable by the eagle on his armor, the corpse was stripped and hung on a frame made of six poles, where for six weeks, archers used his body for target practice. <laughs> what? However... Six weeks? Six weeks. That was a stunk. We're getting there, too. Okay. Oh, God. However, it is said that the carrion did not feed on him, and his body produced no odor. And the corpse caused fear and nightmares in the people. Well, yeah, so he's, he's the, got a corpse hanging up there. So is the, he's the pure and uncorrupted saint of this story? He is. <laughs> Heeding these omens, the Tatars buried him as a hero, killing 30 oxen in his name. They buried him as a hero after shooting his body full of for arrows six for six weeks. Yes. Wait, what made him change their mind? Because his body didn't decay? His body didn't decay and everyone started getting nightmares. <laughs> I think I just put it back in the river at that point and said, okay, someone else will deal with it now. Yeah. And his prized armor was eventually distributed among the Tatar chiefs. Okay, so this hero is a hero with quotes around it. Yes. Relics of Yermak also continued to command significant power and prestige in the years after his death. And in particular, the search for his armor affected at least one element of Siberian relations. Decades after Yermak's death, a Mongol leader who had assisted the Russian government approached the Voyevoda, so the leader of Tobolsk, and asked for his assistance in obtaining an item in the Tatar's possession, believed to be Yermak's armor. The reason he approached the Voyevoda was that he had previously been denied a trade by the Tatars after offering them ten slave families and a thousand sheep. The Tatars, despite being convinced that the armor had divine properties agreed to the sale upon the involvement of the leader of the Russians, and soon after the Mongol, convinced of the power of Yermak's armor, refused service to the Russian government because he no longer feared their might. Oh. I've got this armor. I'm the god now. Basically. This, this, turned, this is a very drastic turn for the Lord of the Rings fashion here. Yeah. It just keeps on rolling now. Um, I'd take all those sheep, though, seriously. Yeah. Ten slave families and a thousand sheep. That's, you it's need a pretty good deal. Ten slave families to watch a thousand sheep. Right? Yeah. So then, basically after that, the rest of the pattern of settlement is a lot like Canada and northern North America. Which we are also unfamiliar with because we are Americans. Okay. <laughs> um, basically, more and more Cossacks come and they set up a fur trade. They sail yeah. down rivers. Okay. They... Ask indigenous peoples to give them furs, and in return they give them sweet Russian swag. And sing voyageur uh -huh. songs. Yeah. Uh -huh. And when they don't agree, they kill villages in sort of emblematic fashion and hang people up on meat hooks as a lesson to the next tribe over. Uh -huh. And 
thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people die of smallpox. Huh. Okay. In Siberian interior, much like North America, yeah, estimated it... to be about 70% of the population in some areas. Yeah, we're, we're jumping our, our movie references and slash history references pretty rapidly, but that does fit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the tribute, interestingly, that they demanded in furs from the Siberian natives was called the Yasak, which was probably a, the name is also a Turkic name that they just took over and was a tax that the Golden Horde levied on everyone. Huh. So they basically just said, okay, we're taking this now. We're the new horde. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone gave the Cossacks furs. They sailed. <laughs> Meet the new horde. Same, same as the, the old horde. <laughs> <laughs> and in return, gave royal gifts from the Tsar, including tobacco, flints, knives, axes, and multicolored crystal beads. And fish oil. Fish oil. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a different. That's different. Yeah. And it's estimated that the furs from Siberia at this time made up like 20 to 30% of the Tsar's treasury. So Siberia actually okay. made, was, yeah. was not a bad strategic... No, uh, it made them incredibly rich. Yeah. And in spite of the inauspicious beginnings, within 50 years they made it to the Pacific Ocean, so probably like 6,000 miles. Yeah, Ooh. which, I mean, you thought the expansion of Moscow was rapid before. Holy crap. Yeah, and again, not really any thorough settlement just you sail down a river you build a fort uh-huh. you make you find the local tribe and say give me your furs we'll give you some beads and some knives and some tobacco or uh-huh. else or else you sail down another river same thing happens and within not too long you've made it all the way across a continent you keep on moving south and then you realize oh that's the chinese and they have guns and you stop <laughs> <laughs> hey guys there's but an ocean how here. do you how do you then later continue to exert control over that vast region. I think you just keep... Well, one of the things you do is send more Cossacks uh-huh. and send troublesome populations like old believers. Which I was wondering when that's going to get yeah. into the story here. And you don't really exert a lot of control. It's just neither does anyone else. It's so sparsely populated that you have guns, you have forts, you have towns. You send over a tiny fragment of your population to settle and within... Not too long, you're already outnumbering who was already there, just because you have so much bigger a population base. Mm-hmm. It's estimated, I think, the whole population of Siberia was estimated at about 300,000 at the beginning of Russian settlement. Okay. So, bigger than the towns where you grew up, but, right. but... not any bigger than the town where we're living now for all of Siberia. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> to have, yeah, granted our towns were not big, but <laughs> to have the population spread out over that wide of a region is like one person per, uh, like per state, basically. Yeah. So eventually, if you have a growing population, you settle people there at all, eventually, yeah, you'll start doing okay. Hmm. I don't know. I just really surprised that all those local tribes wouldn't just kind of just be like, uh, yeah, you came through, but we're just, we're still independent. We're not going to, like, pay taxes to you. But you can probably infer there's more where these guys came from, and they're just going to keep coming, and you're also getting some trade with stuff you probably don't get a lot of access to. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, but... Hmm. Of course, it is interesting they wouldn't just band together and wipe them out, like you said, or put up more of a front of... Resistance. I guess well, maybe there wasn't a, a point where it was bad enough that they had to or something. Or there wasn't sufficient need to... But yeah, like you said, like 
maybe it would just be a long time to find the other tribe that also hates these guys. Yeah. And you've been you, fighting each other for you've years. You've been fighting right. them for a long time. Mm-hmm. These guys are there. You don't speak the same language. You don't have yeah. the same religion. There is a kind of fun quote from when a particular tribe did try and rebel. According to one 17th century report, not only were the Yasak gatherers beaten when they came to collect the fur tax, but the natives proceeded to throw the sovereign's presents and tie them onto dogs' necks and throw them into the fire. And then they pay the Yasak with no courtesy. They kick it with their feet and throw it to the ground. And they call us, your servants, bad people. <laughs> that last okay. one was just a bridge too far, man. Bad people. They That's beat us, and they took our gifts and tied them to dogs, and they still paid us, but they kicked it at us, and they called us bad. They just didn't have the same vocabulary as the literati that wrote the reply to the comics, <laughs> Clearly <did> not. <laughs> no, this chronicle was just... Formerly polite people, finally snapping. Yeah. You're, 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 you're not good people. You're bad people. <laughs> Take these furs and kick <laughs> Our passive aggression is finally broken. So when when do the runaway serfs enter the narrative? Or is it just inferred that all of this is partly runaway serfs? I think it's inferred that all of the settling that happens slowly later on Mm -hmm. is runaway serfs. I did read a lot that when Russian nobles started going to Siberia, which largely happened with the Decemberist uprising in the early part of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. it was a bunch of sort of liberal aristocrats that tried to overthrow the Tsar, and they were all exiled. They remarked over and over again on how just rich and prosperous and happy and better off all the peasants in Siberia seemed than the serfs in Russia proper. And polite. (laughs) Yeah, they're polite and much more hospitable and live in huge houses and... Mm -hmm. Which, once again, as we've said in previous episodes, there never was serfdom in Siberia. Right, right. They might have been runaway serfs, but the whole institution didn't really make it that far. Yeah. So, lots of rhapsodies about Decemberists' wives going and improving, wanting to improve things and finding that the peasants there are doing just fine. Hmm. Hmm. So, if you could figure out how to survive, not necessarily such a bad deal for a runaway, to be a runaway serf there. Quote from one of the Decemberist wives, Traveling through Siberia, I was wondered and fascinated at every step by the cordiality and hospitality I met everywhere. I was fascinated by the richness and the abundance with which the people live today. But at that time there was even more expanse in everything. Siberia is an extremely rich country. The land is unusually fruitful, and if little work is needed to get a pleasant, plentiful harvest. Notes of a Decemberist wife. And that's probably one of the few times in Russian history where somebody said that about a village, and it was actually true, not just a Potemkin village. But the Decemberists themselves were exiled to Siberia, mostly on the theory that since they were the highest up courtiers around the Tsar, they would just be so terribly bored that it would be the worst punishment ever. (laughs) You're going to your room. (laughs) And the very next sentence after that note from a Decemberist wife in the Wikipedia article about the wonderful abundance and hospitality of Siberians is... A number of Decemberists died of diseases. Some suffered psychological shock and even went out of their mind. <laughs> so that was The Shining. Then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So not a bad deal if you're a peasant and running away from your horrible surf existence to live this life of abundance. But if you were rich, it was the worst thing ever. It was getting stationed in Bismarck. Yes. <laughs> No French novels and Muscovite vodka make Bjorkovich go something something. <laughs> this other really weird thing I read about how much less drunk the Siberians were, because they had easier access to vodka. 
Uh. And just drank more, but less in benders. I Uh couldn't figure out why that would be, but it appeared to be an observation Mm. at the time. Hmm. Okay. So that was the Siberia bit. That's the Siberia bit. That's the fun part. Now, the old believer bit. Now, the old believer bit. So, the Archpriest Avakum. Avakum. Protopope Avakum, if you prefer. What time period is this now? This is the 1650s and 1660s. Okay. So it's about the 50 years after the conquest when Cossacks are starting to make their way all the way to the Pacific and have a bunch of fur trading posts. And also right after serfdom is actually codified into law in 1649. Yes, which is sort of an interesting thing in the establishment of the old believer schism is a lot of people just seem to be getting more and more fed up with centralization and state power and increasing bureaucratic control over their lives and they're being locked down to a particular place, a lot of that is manifested in anger of the church becoming much, much more centralized. Hmm. Okay. And anger against the autocratic whims of the patriarch and changing all our beloved old customs and rituals. And Uh it's just sort of a, there's a big sort of fuck the man sentiment behind both Cossacks and old ritualism all happening at the same time. The actual impetus was that the new patriarch Nikon sent emissaries to Greece to purportedly the homeland of orthodoxy and found that the Greeks were doing things pretty different in a lot of ways. And so he did a rush job of changing all of the liturgical texts, said that everyone had to cross themselves with a different number of fingers with three fingers instead of two. Okay. Changed the spelling of Jesus so it became Jesus instead of Isus, added a letter in there, Okay. which if you have heavy sort of numerological and liturgical symbolism is not an entirely not big deal. Uh-huh. Well, you Changed... also stepped through the wrong thing in the, the Last Crusade. Exactly. See, it has consequences. <laughs> Change the direction that you process around the church in various liturgical ceremonies. So you go counterclockwise instead of clockwise, or else uh-huh. the other way around. I don't remember for sure. Um, added an extra alleluia. So in places where you say Alleluia, Alleluia, instead you say Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O Lord. Well, that's just the Trinity. That makes sense. I say with three fingers, a lot of it. Okay, fine. I'm sorry. I'm picking fights with dead people. (laughs) You are. (laughs) And the old believer, old ritualist line is, it's not that we ignorant northern barbarians have fallen away through textual and copy errors of how it's always been done in Greece. It's... Uh The Greeks have lost their right to even be Orthodox. They've sunk into heresy by printing books and talking to Catholics and having been conquered by the salt, by the Ottomans and the Muslims. And sure, counterpoint. Yeah, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah. I figured. Okay, so all of these little changes are basically like, eh, who cares? Kind of things, right? But I figured it had to be something that the people just latched onto with their um, smoldering. Um, prejudices and hatreds and access to grind and just general angst due to their situation at the time and then they just couldn't let it rest after that. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and I was again really surprised by the thing you read in the earlier episode that it was still being debated not just everyone had sifted down on one side or the other in surf communities 200 years later. Mm-hmm. What the, it wasn't really debated in that story so much as like Oh crap! This bad thing must be happening because we've lost our way. Maybe it was. Maybe the old belief was correct. Well, the but that's what I mean. Right. There are people saying maybe they'd been right all along, two hundred right. years later. Yeah. So yeah. And by most accounts, all of the reforms were a pretty autocratically done rush job mm. that made the clergy and the populace 
very unhappy just with style of how it was done. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the Obamacare rollout of its day. <laughs> right. <laughs> so repeal so the Nikonshina. Basically. That's the first thing I'm going to do when I get into office is repeal the Nikonshina. And actually the way it all eventually fished out was there was a big council of all the bishops and a bunch of patriarchs from other Orthodox countries who decided that the reforms were accurate and should be kept and that the patriarch was an asshole who had handled things so badly that he should be fired. Did he get fired? Yeah, actually. Wow. Meanwhile, you still have to deal with the Immature website, don't you? <laughs> so they needed they needed a fall guy, right. but, but they kept... But they kept all the things that happened. They didn't and repeal. still anathematized all of the people who had the old ritual. And if they were peasants, basically, sent a bunch of the leaders into exile in Siberia or killed them. They actually burned a bunch of people at the stake, including our hero, eventually. Okay, so this this did reach, like, Reformation-level kind of animosity. Oh, very much so. Avakum gets... Yeah, not in his autobiography, obviously, because he's writing it, but he was eventually burned at the stake. But before that, he wrote a book, which is... This is all necessary historical background, but more than anything else, it's just kind of an interesting slice of life into everything that's happening in Russia at this time. So it's a weird narrative. He starts out just talking about himself as a parish priest and how he's a vigorous defender of all the old ways. Then he's exiled to Siberia. Then he comes back and he's hobnobbing with the Tsar and being a high-up person in the Kremlin, and then it's thrown into prison again, and... So you follow up being exiled with, eh, I'll go see what the Tsar's doing. Yeah, and the Tsar's like, hey, you're the best priest ever. If you just accept crossing yourself with three fingers, I'll make you my personal confessor. (laughs) Which he does? No. (laughs) No, he says, no, fuck you, I'm being true to the old ways, and he gets thrown into prison and then eventually burned at the stake. But in between there somewhere, he was hobnobbing with the Tsar. For a long time, yeah. When it was all sort of waffling as to, which way is this going to play out? Uh Anyway, a life full of ups and downs, but some of the more entertaining bits. Here's an early section where he's just describing his life as a local parish priest. After a short time, as it has been written, the sorrows of death compassed me, and the perils of hell found me, and I met with trouble and sorrow. An officer took away a maid, the daughter of a widow, and I implored him to give the orphan back to her mother, but he disdained her importunities and raised a storm against me. His men came to the church and crushed the life out of me. I lay senseless on the ground for half an hour or more. It came back by the will of God, and he, seized with fear, gave the maid to me. The devil then prompted him, and he came to the church and beat me, and dragged me in my vestments on the ground, and I recited a prayer all the while. I'm so lost. This guy gets beat up in church a lot. A lot. And then the maid gets given back to him after he got beat up. But then the devil just tells him to go back and beat him up in church again. I don't get it. I'm sure no one does. No. (laughs) Afterwards, another officer found occasion to be moved with fury against me. He came running to my house, beat me, and buried his teeth in my finger like a dog. (laughs) What? Okay. Was he a Livonian werewolf? And when his Possibly. throat was filled with gore, he ah! released my hand from the clutch of his teeth, and leaving me went home. As for me, I thanked God, banished my hand with a piece of linen, and betook myself to Vespers. <laughs> Just got mauled by an officer. Another day, another dollar. <laughs> As I was on my way, that same man attacked me once more with two small pistols. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Standing close to me, he fired one of them. By the will of God, although the powder exploded in the pan, the pistol did not go off. He flung it on the ground and fired the other pistol, and the will of God was exercised once more and the pistol did not go off. 
I continued on my way, praying fervently, and raised my hand to bless the officer and bowed to him. He cursed me, and I said to him, Let grace be on your lips, Ivan Rodionovich. He was enraged with me because of the chanting in the church. He wanted it to be done with dispatch, and I sang the office according to the rule, without haste. <laughs> so, There's always somebody he, who says the service goes on yeah, too long. thinks the service goes on too long, so he breaks into his house, bites his finger until his mouth fills up with blood. Comes back. He comes back and tries to shoot him. Twice. Twice. And then the guns misfire, right? Uh-huh. Both of them? Both of them. Oh my god. Next sentence. <laughs> then he deprived me of my house and drove me out on the road, plundering everything and giving me no bread for the journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> okay that's an interesting one alright a little while later in the narrative to my village came dancing bears with tambourines and lutes and I miserable so sinner, that's what happened to the bears from yeah. the story yeah exactly <laughs> episode four. they become dancing bears you are the dancing okay sorry. and I miserable sinner full of zeal for Christ drove them out I broke the tambourines and the lutes and smashed the clown's masks out in the field. I alone, against a great number, I took from them two great bears. One I struck senseless, but he revived, and I set the other loose in the fields. Now we have a loose bear. Thank you, priest. <laughs> Precious. From uh, semi-pro, <laughs> the bear is loose in the basketball stadium. It's like, nobody move. <laughs> Dewey, I think is his name. Oh my god. So he's punching bears. <laughs> yeah. Um, because of this, Vasily Petrovich Shermatev was sailing down the Volga to Kazan to assume the office of governor, summoned me aboard his ship. He upbraided me and ordered me to bless his son Matthew, whose face was shaven. But I did not bless him and reprimanded me him from the scriptures when I looked upon his lewd countenance. In, <laughs> great, in great wrath, the nobleman commanded that I should be thrown into the Volga. He gets thrown into rivers a lot, too. That's uh, an ongoing theme. To, yeah. <laughs> After I'd been dealt many injuries, they cast me out. But afterwards, they were good to me. We were reconciled in the Tsar's antechamber, and Vasily's wife became my younger brother's spiritual daughter. Thus God leads his own. But let me resume my narrative. <laughs> Later on, another officer was infuriated against me. <laughs> you never told why. And it keeps going on from there, yeah. Someone else just bursts into his house and tries to shoot him, and At then this... they're reconciled. And... Okay. At this point... I'm like, I'm feeling like one of those old school parents that when your kid comes home from school and says, somebody picked a fight with me, my first response is, what did you do to him? Yeah, there's a lot that's not really I being addressed. I was just chanting slowly in church according to the rule. Also, maybe I burned his house down. I don't know. <laughs> then he comes at me. I mean, why? Yeah. Ineffable will of God, I guess. So again, and you can, if there are too many of these, you can edit some out. <laughs> The fights of the archpriest. Soon after this, others drove me out from a second time from this place. Okay. I dragged myself to Moscow by the will of God. Sorry, I dragged myself to Moscow, and by the will of God, the Tsar ordered that I should be instilled as archpriest of Yurievitz on the Volga. There too, I remained but a short time, only eight weeks. The devil inspired the priests, the peasant folk, and their women. They came to the patriarchal chancery, where I was attending to ecclesiastical affairs, and they dragged me out of the chancery. They were about fifteen hundred strong. They beat me with rods in the middle of the street and trampled me on the ground. The women beat me with oven forks. For my, <laughs> for my sins, I was almost beaten to death, and they threw me against the corner of the house. The governor came rushing up with his cannoneers, and seizing me, carried me on horseback to my poor home. He placed his men around the yard. Meanwhile, the mob marched to the house. They raised a great tumult in town. Especially did the priests and the women who I had warned against fornication shout, Kill this thief and son of a harlot, and throw his body to the dogs in the ditch. <laughs> 
You know, so now, everywhere you go, guy, it's you. It's you. Now I'm figuring he has to be like Toby from The Office, who just everybody just doesn't like just because he just looks funny or something. Just can't help but picking on the runt of the pack. Well, he does get rid of your dancing bears. I mean, he does. <laughs> Although he can go head to head with a bear, so he can't be that much a runt. <laughs> Well, and he's laying a bear low in the field. He's required to forgive people. He can he can fuck up a bear if he wants to. Okay, that's a good point. I mean, there's nothing in the scripture about not wailing on bears. I think Jesus did say say something about bearing the other cheek. <laughs> so, this is the background and milieu of this already conservative, slow-chanting priest whom nobody likes. <laughs> Before the schism even happens. On which point... He's a staunch defender and is exiled to Siberia, where he hooks up with this Cossack called Pashkov, okay. who's the head of a band of fur traders and might also be sort of the governor of an area that leads him in semi-enslaved conditions to sail on rivers all throughout Siberia and haul furs, where he gets thrown into rivers a lot more and beaten up a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> we floated lumber for the building of houses and forts. There was nothing to eat. Men died of hunger and from working in the water. Shallow is the river, and the rafts heavy, the taskmaster's pitiless, the sticks hard, the cudgels naughty, the whips cutting, our suffering cruel, fire and rack, and people starving. One more stroke, and a man would fall dead. Alas, what time, What times were these? I know not how he could lose his mind in this way. That's just his little snippet of what it's like living under a Cossack slave driver. <laughs> He's dragging along furs in Siberia for 10 years, makes it to Lake Baikal, makes it all the most all the way to the Pacific Ocean, uh-huh. goes back to Moscow. Tsar begs him to recant his old ritualist ways. It doesn't... He refuses. He's thrown back in prison. He founds out and is scandalized that the Bishop of Gaza, who's an ortho, uh, Greek or sort of post-Byzantine Arab Orthodox bishop who's visited and tried to um, show the Russians the three-fingered way of crossing had a loot and tobacco discovered at his house, <gasps> proving that he was a damnable heretic. A loot? <laughs> a loot, obviously. Oh, yes. And tobacco. Tobacco smoke and 60 yeah. pounds of tobacco and a loot and other objects for merrymaking. Yeah, so what's the thing with old believers and tobacco? Because that's the second time that's come up now. He also hates tambourines. And yeah, bears. and dancing bears <laughs> and shaving. So is, it, is that something that old believers just... You are not allowed to smoke tobacco. Yeah, you're not allowed to smoke tobacco. You're not allowed to shave. You have to have a beard. Huh. You're not allowed to have instrumental music of any kind, I think. Okay. That was, in medieval Russia, a big thing. All huh. damnable innovations? Yeah. Huh. You can sing, then. You can sing. It's actually still mostly, except in a few Greek Orthodox American parishes, there's never any instrumental accompaniment in a rush in an orthodox church mm, no organ it's, music huh? yeah no organ music it's all just okay sung vocals but eventually things go badly he's thrown back in prison for a long time all his friends and kinsmen and people that are involved in the schism are mutilated and burned at the stake and there's some pretty interesting description of that oh dear <laughs> yeah anna's heard anna's got a spoiler of this part but They took the priest Lazarus and cut his tongue out of his throat. There was little blood, and soon it stopped flowing, and he went on speaking without a tongue. Then, placing his right hand on the scaffold, they cut it off at the wrist, and as the severed hand lay on the ground, the fingers disposed themselves for the sign of the cross, according to tradition. Of course they did. Two fingers! (laughs) And the hand remained thus for a long time for the people to see, making its profession of faith, poor thing. I myself marveled at this, the lifeless condemning the living. 
On the third day, I put my finger in his mouth. It was smooth, tongueless, but he felt no pain. God healed it in no time. In Moscow, they had cut out part of his tongue, but some of it had remained. But this time, they plucked it out entirely. And for two years, he could speak as clearly as though he had a tongue. But after two years, there was another miracle. In three days, there grew in his mouth another tongue, only a little blunt. But he praised God constantly and condemned the apostates. <laughs> then they took a hermit from Solovki, a monk of the strict observance, the elder Epiphany, and also cut out the whole of his tongue and severed four fingers from his hand. At first, he spoke with difficulty. Then he prayed to the Immaculate Mother of God, and in a vision, two tongues were shown to him, the tongue of Moscow and that of this land, suspended in midair. Uh. Taking one of them, he placed it did in the, his... Did the people have to try to identify which was the Moscow tongue? Yeah, I, that would I be a nice game. I don't know what game. that means. Like, <laughs> maybe the tongue of this land is the righteous tongue, and the Moscow tongue is the apostate tongue? It's not really clear. Know. Yeah, consequences. It doesn't even say right which one, one he takes. It just says, taking one of them, he <laughs> placed it in his mouth. And from that day, he could speak clearly and distinctly, and a perfect tongue grew in his mouth. <laughs> okay. Marvelous are the works of God, and ineffable are the ways of the Lord. He permits execution, and then he again heals and forgives. But why speak of it at length? God is of old a miracle worker. He permits execution? Mm-hmm. How was that just thrown in there? What does that have to even to do with anything? I think this guy rambles. <laughs> well, it seems like a writer bill added in by yeah, a politician a just before the vote. People have already been burned at the stake. He's saying <laughs> oh, okay. he permits people to be martyred, but that... other people, when their tongue is ripped out, he'll miraculously heal it. Okay. Since he is that from old of miracle execution. Worker. Yes. Yeah. Like burning at the stake. Okay. In Moscow, the rest of us were roasted and baked. They burned Isaiah, and they burned Abraham, and a great many other champions of the church were annihilated. God will count their numbers. It is amazing that the Nikonians refused to regain their senses. Patriarch Nikon was the one that instituted all the reforms. They proposed to establish the faith through fire, whip, and gallows. Who were the apostles that taught them these things? I do not know. My Christ did not order his apostles to teach in this way, to lead men to the faith with fire, whip, and gallows. He commanded the apostles, go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that's the end. Well, dude, you also damned an entire <laughs> regiment just because they pissed you off, so... But he felt really guilty about it and has continued to to this day. Wow. So that one was much more of a narrative than yes. the Siberian thing, which was basically a history. But it was also really disjointed and hard to... I was like, what's going on? It's really hard to follow just what's happening. Yeah. Angry from priest is angry. It's like... Little vignettes are really vivid, but they're not connected in a way that makes any sense if you don't already know what's happening in his life. It's like Grandpa Simpson. Even even if you read the yeah, story. Yeah, even if you read the whole thing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, just very different styles and standards of literature at the time. Very interesting. No, if I'd known how the pieces fit together or could tell, I would have narrated that. Which is probably... That does probably explain it because at the time like 1600 or whatever, like you said, right? Um, people probably would have known all the details and the person relating the story, probably orally in many cases, would rely on the, on the people's background knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I this was a written document. He wrote okay, it was a written document, okay. But he was probably famous enough that the general arc of what was happening in his life was pretty well known, Okay, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Or there just wasn't enough of a tradition of writing that kind of story that... Or he's had his brains fried in uh, Siberia, and he's free associating. <laughs> well, that's part of what I meant. You write down what seems really vivid in your memory, but don't... That chicken, man! I love <laughs> that chicken! Okay. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I think it's time to uh, draw this one to a close. So that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks for being on the show once again, Nick and Anna. Yep. And uh, the next episode is going to be our grand finale. Ooh. Yes. So let me tell you what we have got for you this time because it's going to be good. Not only do we have an awesome story to tell, exciting thriller story, in fact, but we also have an equally awesome and thrilling guest, none other than Daniel Doty from Lesser Bonaparte's fame, the original lineup of the Lesser Bonapartes. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about that. He's going to be here to provide his trademark perspicaciousness and canny commentary as we explore our story, which is going to be... That's right, I've teased you with it before, saying that we are going to have a finale having to do with a surf hunter and his surf hunted. That's absolutely correct. So the story comes from the autobiography of runaway surf Nikolai Shipoff. So that is going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun. So definitely check us out for that. We're going to do it the most cinematic way we can, complete with soundtrack and all. You definitely do not want to miss it. Okay. And, you know, if you like what we're doing here, hey, why not support the show? You can contribute at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. And as thanks for the contribution, you can pick up some great perks like getting your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I did Daniel as a 70s rocker with Stasia from Hawkwind. (laughs) (laughs) Bonus points if you even know who that is. (laughs) Uh, You can see that on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. You can get your portrait done too, so support the show and help us keep this awesome content coming to you. All right, that's it, everybody. Thank you for listening. See you next week for our grand finale. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.